Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 5.58 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It is the 19th of April, and this is error code 404, page not found of Bitcoin, and we're going to talk about the crash. We got to, man. There's all kinds of shit that went into that. So I've collected up uh, more than a few stories about what happened. So some may overlap, but I think it's really important that we get a clear, as clear of a picture as we can on this particular one, not because it was any more severe than we've than what we've seen before. We God knows if you've been in the space for any length of time, you've seen these things before. But um, I think it's important not because of the the severity of it as much as the amount of attention this one is getting. And you knew it was going to happen sooner or later. Right. I mean, these 20% dips, they they happen. And if you can survive them, then you'll be all right. It's the people with the weakest of hands that are going to get shook out and their Bitcoins are going to be gone forever. God, did I just say Bitcoins? I, I should know better. It's Bitcoin. I know some people say Bitcoins and have, you know, they don't have an allergic reaction to it. I do. I, it's, I don't know why. It shouldn't bug me, but for some reason or another, it it does. When somebody says, how many Bitcoins do you have? I'm like, you mean Bitcoin? How much Bitcoin do I have? That's, it just sounds better to me. So let's, let's start by not talking about the crash, but talking about uh, Jack Everett. He is at Jack Everett, E-V-E-R-I-T-T. He's the head of, he's the guy that put together Thunder Games, which uh, is one of the trio, well not trio, there's actually a group of, of gaming enthusiasts out there that are using Lightning for their games, and Jack Everett is one of them. I have interviewed Jack uh, way back, I don't know, a few months back, it was before Christmas, and uh, if you want to go back to that one, uh, scan through the uh, uh through the listing of all the podcasts that I've done. And uh, you'll find Jack Everett from Thunder Games in there sometime before Christmas. Anyway, so what he says, he's got a tweet up here that says, I've published a new Bitcoin earning website, satsy.com. App and Chrome extensions are coming soon. Where Thunder Games is my project for earning sats via gaming, at GetSatsy, S-A-T-S-Y, will be sat stacking in its purest form. Satsy pays out via the Lightning Network. Now, he's referring, or he, he is retweeting, the Get Satsy uh, Twitter account, which is at Get Satsy, if you want to find out more about it. But here's, here's the take. After much blood, sweat, and tears, Satsy.com is now live. We aim to be the ultimate destination to earn Bitcoin. We launch with two initial sat stacking features, shopping 
and surveys. Try it now at satsy.com. Stack with surveys. Get paid Bitcoin for your opinion, answer a few questions, and our partner survey companies will pay you in Bitcoin. Stack with shopping. Shop at your favorite retailers and earn sats back from your purchase. We kick off with 250 shops to shop with right now. We'd love your feedback. Join our Telegram group to chat with us and help us shape our sat stacking offering for the future. And that is a Telegram group is named Get Satsy if you want to get in there. Sign up today for a free gift. Spoiler alert, it's some free Bitcoin. So we have now another one has entered the fray. So along with Try Lolly and Fold, we have yet another uh, income or we have another person who is going to ride this wave. And this is good. Uh, it's not that, you know, we used to say competition is good, but we're so damn early. I don't even include this as competition. Honestly, it's like, I don't think until you get to 15 or 20 of these things, I don't think we can really even list any of this stuff as competition. But good for Jack Everett for getting this shit off the ground. Now, let's talk about the crash. We're going to start this one with a kind of an interesting take on it from Kevin Reynolds out of Coindesk. Mix of old, wrong, and dubious news scares rookie investors and fuels crypto sell-off. Uh, call it the recipe for perfect market meltdown. Take a dubious tweet about an unconfirmed U.S. investigation of financial institutions using crypto to launder money, a report that doesn't appear to have come from Bloomberg, Dow Jones, Reuters, or any other quote-unquote reputable news service. Take that tweet and sprinkle it throughout the cryptoverse, shake vigorously. Add a new CNBC tweet about a month-old Reuters report regarding a coming crypto ban in India. Let that marinate until fully absorbed, about 30 minutes. Next, fold in several now-deleted tweets that incorrectly implied that the Coinbase CEO has sold the majority of his stock in last week's direct listing. Uh, whisk until blended properly. Bake at 350 for about an hour. Serve to a host of relatively inexperienced investors <laughs> who recently flooded the market, driving it to all-time highs due to the hype over Coinbase's listing and who were already nervous about a partial crypto ban by Turkey announced last week. After feeding that meal of purportedly bad news to that audience, it'd have been shocking if those new crypto investors hadn't fled the table. Give leftovers to the doge, which, like the Shiba Inu dog that represents it, can seemingly consume any combination of bad news and not be affected. The price of the meme-based cryptocurrency is up 18% in the last 24 hours, the only bright spot on a down day. Good boy. Afterthought, while newbies may have left the table, long-term hodlers are unlikely to quit as there have been several, get that, several 20% drops during the current bull run. Besides, pundits seldom take weekend moves seriously as liquidity is low, especially in Asia. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. So clearly this was yesterday. All right. So that's going to kick it off, right? This, this relatively lighthearted look at something that has caused some, some fairly serious grief. Uh, we're starting to look a lot like 2017. In fact, it looks almost exactly like 2017 Ponzi trader at buyer of blood. Oh God. 
tweeted this one and I saw it. Uh, yeah, I tweeted it yesterday. I saw it yesterday. And I don't follow this guy. I, this, I just, it's just, I think this particular tweet in general is really important to understand the past. If you have not been around this space for very long, you may not understand just how serious this shit can get. And you really do need to understand just how serious this shit can get. An in real life friend and community member of ours took his own life last night after last night's events. I really feel sick writing this message. I have love for you all. Please reach out to us if you're in a dark place. This is just money. Your life is worth more. I'll be taking a break. He continues in another tweet. This does not mean DM me asking me for money. There are also people trained to help you, so please call 833-456-4566. I can only do so much. And I can't remember if that's the exact number or if he's just tongue-in-cheeking a reference to the suicide hotline. Um, for those of you who are new in this space, it should it would behoove you to go back and look somehow, you know, and I don't really know how to scan Reddit because I, I just am never really on Reddit. Not anymore anyway. So I don't really know how to go pull these old <clears throat> Reddit posts out or how to go find them. But if you know how to go find tweet or a uh, or Reddit post, uh, you know, then you need to uh, look for in the year 2017 suicide hotline number. And the reason I say that is that in the 2017 bull run coming up to December, when it, when it broke uh, 20, well, it hit almost 20 grand and then fell off the cliff because it was a blow off top. We had several instances of, of drops, you know, 20%, sometime 30% drop leading up to that, that final blow off top at every single time you would go to Reddit and you would see a horror story. Somebody who, I remember the one that, I think the one that sticks with me the most is the guy that, you know, had a, it was like a family of four and he mortgaged his house. And if I remember right, it mortgaged his house for Doge and they had that thing paid off. And was it, I can't remember what it was. It may have been Litecoin. Anyway, after one of these, after one of these drops, um, they lost the house. You know, it's like in a family of four, I'm talking two small children, not like two 18 year olds that are, you know, about to go to college. I'm talking like, you know, four and six lost the house. Wife divorced his ass. And he was coming on to Reddit because he was, he was thinking about killing himself. And so this guy's tweet where it says your life is worth more. He's not wrong, but this is what shit, coin, shit coinery will do for you. <clears throat> you can, I mean, in, even in Bitcoin, you cannot do stuff like go and, and mortgage your house and, you know, take out like loans. And I know American HODL and some other people have, have done so. I have never thought that that was a good idea. If they want to do it, hey, fine, bro, go right ahead. But that may mean that they're just in a position where they can do that kind of shit. And if they get slapped in the face, it's not going to affect them. So, and that's the only way that I would even remotely recommend somebody do something stupid like that. You've, if you're going to do that, 
then you better have like half a million dollars in cash sitting around when this shit happens because we are not done with this. This is going to continue. And there's going to be more and more of these poor ass newbies coming into the space and they're going to do stupid shit. Like they're going to buy a whole boatload of, of Litecoin at $300 or whatever and they're going to ride that son of a bitch down to 75 And they're going to lose everything. And it's just, I... You know, and this is what I think the thing that makes me the most angry is being called a toxic maximalist. I mean, usually I just, you know, it's like water off a duck's back and I usually wear that with a, you know, a ba- as a badge of honor. However, in these particular cases, it becomes very evident that what we were trying to do was use our experience to tell newbies, you don't want to get into this, dude. You really don't. That's why it's you buy Bitcoin and you hold Bitcoin. You DCAN. You don't take mortgages on your paid off house on a family of four to ape into something like fucking Cardano. It's ridiculous. And yet, what did, oh God, did I, I, I don't think I actually posted it up. Let me see if I can actually find it. Hold on for a sec. Uh, do, 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 do. Yeah, um, I replied to Bitstamp with that Ponzi trader tweet that was talking about this guy that killed himself because one hour ago, Bitstamp tweets this shit out. We've enabled transfers of Ave, Bat, and Uma at Bitstamp with an exclamation point. Trading kicks off tomorrow for Ave on Wednesday for BAT and on Thursday for UMA with zero fees until the end of June on all new pairs. And what I replied to them was, you were going to get people killed shitcoining, stop it before you make somebody commit suicide. And then I attached the Ponzi trader tweet to it. It's not going to do dick. It doesn't have, it's got one single like on it right now. It's not going to do dick. No one's going to listen to me. And they're not going to listen to you either. You know what they're going to do? They're going to ape into every shitcoin under the sun until they all die. And I hate to see it because I've seen it before and I've seen how much destruction it causes. And I was having a discussion on, on Saturday night while all this shit was going on. I didn't know. I was on the phone with a buddy of mine and I finally had to tell him, you know what? I need you to sell all of your Bitcoin and just go ahead and ape into uh, BSV and BCH. Do it now. That's where, the, that's where your riches lie. There, just buy the shittiest of the shit coins that you can possibly get your hands on, get fucking wrecked, so that you finally figure out I was actually trying to help you. I wasn't trying to keep you poor. I wasn't trying to, you know, like keep you under my thumb so that that I did better than you. That's, I literally had that. I had that moment where you know, like, and it's not like one person was talking to another guy, completely different dude, like Friday, like Friday night. He was asking me, he said, Ethan and, and Cardano look, look interesting. And I'm like, no, they don't look interesting. Do you realize that Ether had a 70% pre-mine? So every piece of shit Ethereum that you buy, 70% of that money is actually going into the pockets of, the, of Vitalik Buterin because they had a pre-mine and so they hold all the coins. So every time you buy ETH, all it does is jack up the prices of the shit that they hold. 
And yes, I get the fact that it happens the same way in Bitcoin, but there was no pre-mine. There was no such thing as a pre-mine. It was the only, it was only the most equitable launch that you could have possibly had. Plus a million coins sitting in Satoshi's wallet that hasn't moved since 2009 actually have never moved. As far as I can tell, there's never been movement. It's just, it, they were just getting thrown into this address after, after they were doing the early mining and they've never moved. I mean, if either, either Satoshi is dead or the keys got burned or the aliens that gave us this technology f have flown away and just, they just didn't even look back. And they're, they're already gone and, and nowhere close to being able to, to, you know, move this shit on the market. But with all the rest of these, there's either always a pre-mine or there's always a gotcha. And when we, when we dig into the fundamentals of Doge here in a minute, uh, you'll, you'll understand that is if I can get to it. And yes, it's going to be important to get to, I, I promise. Bitcoin transactions fees or transaction fees soar to 47 bucks as market crashes. So here we go. We're, we're going to do more of this. Price charts flash only red numbers and steep percentage drops today after Bitcoin dropped 15% overnight to lows of $52,144. By the way, this was written yesterday, just so that you know. For many, this is the day to get out of the market because you're stupid. The subsequent exodus has caused a traffic jam on the Bitcoin blockchain. Close to 130,000 transactions await confirmation on the blockchain, according to data by, oh, uh, I can't pronounce his name, Joho Honek, I think. And Bitcoin's average transaction fees are currently at a four-month high at $46.88, which is up over 200% since April the 4th, when the average transaction fee was $15.56. Blockchain critic David Girard chalked today's unprecedented congestion to Bitcoin holders running to the exit. No, we're not running to the exit. They're just, David Girard's an idiot, by the way. One trader decrypt spoke to Darius Sitt of QCP Capital attributed the crash. Oh, oh, look, an Amber Alert. Yay. Sorry about that. One trader decrypt spoke to Darius Sitt of QCP Capital attributed the crash to a rumor that the United States Treasury is about to chase after large financial institutions for laundering crypto. Should that rumor turn out to be true, traders should be selling their crypto in fear that the price would fall even lower. This is bad advice. This is terrible advice, by the way. Andrew Fisher's tweet is now next. It says, U.S. Treasury to charge several financial institutions for money laundering using crypto's security lawyers familiar with the Yellen task force plan said. And that was on April the 17th. So that was one of the bullshit, you know, and I don't know if it's a rumor, but that was one of the bullshit pieces of FUD that came out that we were talking about at the top of the show. Making things worse are power outages in China's Xinjiang province, a hotspot for Bitcoin mining. Fewer operational Bitcoin miners places upward price pressure on the average transaction fee. Bitcoin's hash rate dropped from 145 exahashes on April the 16th to 105 the next day. It's currently at 120 exahashes per second, according to BitInfo charts. 
while some traders run for the exit, others no doubt consider today's crash an opportunity to grab Bitcoin at bargain prices. One man's trash is another man's treasure after all. Yeah, nothing couldn't be further, from, you know, couldn't be even more true. Um, and we're, we're right now, we're back up to $56,483 on the Bitcoin price, by the way. That's how these things work out. You get, if you look at it, if you look at a chart and look at it like far enough away, and I'm not talking like getting all the way out to 2011, right? I'm talking about your, your local bull run. You'll see hills and valleys, but the top of each hill and the bottom of each valley are always higher than the next one to it to the right. And that shit continues until you hit one of two things, a blow off top or hyper-Bitcoinization, which means that we're starting into a super cycle. And I don't know if that's going to happen. Uh, honestly, it almost like my gut feeling is that we we're just going to be in a plain old cycle. I'm not looking forward to the bare end of the cycle. If I'm right, um, I would rather see a super cycle because I need something different in my life. <laughs> Not and I'm not talking about just like a high valuation of of Bitcoin. I'm talking about just I don't I hate seeing the same old cycle because it becomes so predictable, which is kind of fodder for the reasoning behind a super cycle this time rather than a plain old cycle is that if people are if people get to the point where they're like ah oh, this is the blow off top and yes you see. You see some, you know, like a, a really good falling away, like another, like a 30% drop or something like that after a tremendous rise up. It'll look like a blow off top and that we're going to go back down again and we're going to end up in a two, two and a half year bear market, which is never fun. That might trigger all the, you know, like hedge funds and, you know, large companies and you know, insurance companies and all that stuff to just buy the shit out of the dip and force it to come back up to nominal levels. And if that happens, probably we'll see a super cycle. I don't know which way I'm gonna go. I'm just gonna say this, my gut tells me that we're probably just gonna be in a regular old cycle, but it may be very different, but not a super cycle. Not saying that a super cycle won't happen, guys. I'm just saying, this is just my gut feeling. <coughs> and sometimes, I like to go with my gut. Now, did a massive Chinese power outage really cause the Bitcoin crash to 50K? Samuel Haig tells us more from Cointelegraph. Uh, Willie Wu, uh, on-chain analyst, argues a massive power outage in Chinese mining hub Xinjiang drove Bitcoin's violent crash down to $50,000. Wu noted reports identifying the blackouts were published late last week with the power outages occurring to facilitate safety inspections. More on this in a sec. In response to a recent flooding accident at a local coal mine that saw 21 miners temporarily trapped underground after power and communications went out, according to the Cambridge Energy or Bitcoin Energy Consumption Index, or the BECI, Xinjiang represents nearly one quarter of the global hash rate. The analyst notes yesterday saw the largest daily drop in total Bitcoin network hash rate since November of 2017, with the hash rate plummeting from 172 exahashes per second to roughly 154 exahashes per second, according to YCharts. 
Popular crypto market analyst Willie Wu attributed the violent April 18th cryptocurrency crash to a sudden drop in hash rate resulting from a power outage in the Chinese region of Xinjiang. Wu points to 9,000 BTC that was transferred to Binance on April the 16th, speculating the funds were likely sent by a whale with closer knowledge to happenings in China. Coupled with heavy selling in the quarterly futures market, the downward momentum drove $4.9 billion worth of Bitcoin liquidations and a further $4.4 billion in margin calls in the altcoin market with a record 1 million accounts being liquidated. However, not everyone agrees with Wu's uh, analysis with Cinemaheim Ventures partner Adam Cochran describing, quote, the idea that a power outage last night in a mining region in China led to a drop in BTC is utter nonsense. So Wu doesn't have a fan there. Wu noted that long-term whales who rarely sell have been buying heavily amid the dip, adding that the lower 50,000 range is forming the largest cluster of price discovery since BTC was below 10,000. Valuation of BTC as a trillion dollar asset is immensely strong, he said, adding that 13% of the entire BTC supply has been moved on chain while Bitcoin's capitalization has exceeded $1 trillion. Now, that was that entire piece was basically kind of condensing a, a tweet thread from Willy Woo or at Woo Nomic, in case you don't know who Willy Woo is. Um, and I'm going to read it to you here, <clears throat> breaking it down. Let's do the postmortem. We just saw the single largest one-day drop in mining hash rate since November of 2017. The hash rate on the network essentially got cut in half, causing mayhem in BTC prices. It crashed. The power outage in Xinjiang, which powers a significant amount of the mining network, was known before the BTC price crash. Here's local news on the 15th of April, and then he gives a, a link. Um, uh, let's see, uh, 9,000 BTC were sent in, was sent into Binance. Read that as a sell-off of those coins. I'd note that Binance serves volume from Asia more than the West. It's likely this was sent, sent in from a whale with closer knowledge to happenings in China. This sell-down was compounded by a sell-off of quarterly futures on derivative markets, which was already underway as early as the 13th of April. The two combined sell pressures was sufficient to tip the price below liquidation levels at $59,000. This triggered a cascade of automatic sell-offs in a chain reaction. $4.9 billion in contracts were liquidated, $9.3 billion including altcoin markets. 1 million trader accounts were liquidated in total. This dip happened while unprecedented numbers of new users are arriving onto the network per day. There's been a retail influx in the last two to three weeks. Strongholders are buying this dip. (laughs) And he's got a chart up here that shows that indeed uh, the buying pressure is the strongest it's been since, was that June of 2020? Wow, that's not bad, dude. Supply profile now forming the largest cluster of price discovery since BTC was below 10K. Validation of BTC as a trillion dollar asset is immensely strong. 13.5% of the entire BTC supply last moved above a $1 trillion market cap. The on-chain SOPR or SOPR metric near a full reset 
a classic buy the dip signal. In simple terms, uh, spent profit or sorry, in simple terms, profit taken by longer term investors is completing. Very little sell power left unless investors want to sell at a loss from their entry price, which is unlikely in a bull market. That SOPR metric is spent output profit ratio. So in summary, initial sell-off due to anticipation of miners going offline in China. Two, sell pressure was sufficient to trigger liquidation of short-term speculator positions, forcing price violently, violently down. Three, longer-term fundamentals are very strong. So there you go. That actually was what I would, had been looking for, that shit, yesterday and i finally found it somebody tweeted uh, uh retweeted uh willie woo's tweet thread and that explained almost everything that happened honestly that's almost everything that happened where do we go from here oh well hell i don't know but china endorses btc investment five things to watch for in bitcoin this week william suberg tells us all about it from coin telegraph uh, Bitcoin is beginning a new week, grinding back to 60K as the shock of a weekend price crash settles. After dropping to as low as 52K in a snap sell-off event, Bitcoin has spent the past two days slowly recovering its losses. So what's next? Cointelegraph presents five factors to consider as a new trading week gets underway. So, one, stocks primed for up only in the short term. The macro picture is fairly stable in Asia and Europe with the United States markets yet to open. A mixed picture greeted investors at the open, but volatility has been broadly absent with only oil showing signs of more pronounced weakness. As such, little impact on Bitcoin is to be expected from equities moves. These forecast to continue building on record highs in the coming weeks. Russell Chesler head of investments and capital markets at the Australian branch of crypto-friendly investment manager Van Eck, captured the mood in a note quoted by Bloomberg, quote, Our current view is that with the short-term interest rate set to remain low for the medium term and our expectation that earnings will continue to increase, it is unlikely that the increase in long-term investment rates will trigger an equity market fall, he wrote. Coronavirus concerns still lingering despite stocks' relentless surge higher with more reported official cases last week than ever before worldwide. Economic responses continue to vary with the patchwork of openings and closing characterizing a country's latest attempts to control the outbreak. I'm so fucking over this shit. In Bitcoin circles, the main talking point naturally remains the weekend's events, which saw a sudden cascade of selling uh, send BTC down by $7,000 in a matter of minutes. Bouncing at just above 52K, the crash echoed similar events this year, and Bitcoin managed to regain around 50% of its lost ground without, within hours. Responses, however, are split between those who consider the volatility business as usual and more conservative voices calling time on the latest bull run. As Cointelegraph reported, suspicions are focusing on a Chinese power blackout. In his breakdown of what happened, popular statistician Willie Wu highlighted both China and skittish moves by futures investors is contributing to the losses. It's not just the SOPR, as we had talked about before. A whole range of Bitcoin network indicators and fundamentals are buoying bulls cause, even as BTC remains below February's highs of 58,300. 
For Wu and others particularly important are the transfer of funds to investors who have traditionally hodled and not soddled, another classic trait of Bitcoin's rise in recent months. Quote, serious strong-handed holders are buying this dip, end quote. Lastly, around 13.5% of the total available Bitcoin supply has been active above 53K, something which Fu, or Fu, Wu, says is confirming its status as a trillion dollar asset. Now, difficulty. A closer look at hash rate, which at one point dropped by almost half, shows that a recovery is in line or in line with price is in fact underway. According to rough estimates from on-chain monitoring resource blockchain, Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin network hash rate is already back above 150 exahashes per second. Is that true? Let me look. Um, hold on. Scanning. Scanning. <laughs> scanning. Uh, we are at 130 exahashes uh, right now as per BitInfo charts. So just, just so you know. Uh, and then let's see. Now, this is the big one. Chinese central bank praises Bitcoin and stable coins. In another unanticipated event, which is arguably yet to be fully appreciated by the market, China has given an unprecedented stamp of approval to cryptocurrency as an investment alternative. Speaking at a conference organized by CNBC, Li Bo, deputy governor of China's central bank, the People's Bank of China, broke ranks to validate both Bitcoin and stable coins. <clears throat> quote, we regard Bitcoin and stablecoin as crypto assets. These are investment alternatives, he said. Let that sink in. In fact, I'll read it again for you. We regard Bitcoin and stablecoin as crypto assets. These are investment alternatives. Okay, so there you go. China Central Bank Deputy Governor Li Bo basically said, you know, this, this shit's legitimate. That's a lot bigger than people think it is. And it's going to take a while for that to bubble up through the market because it's so it's so bullish that even the bulls aren't going to believe it. So watch for this news to continuously resurface this week and coming into the weekend. And we'll have to see what the weekend brings us. But that's that's pretty huge, dude. I mean, that's that's massive. Oh, the kimchi premium has resurfaced. In case you don't know what kimchi premium is. It is the price of Bitcoin in South Korea, which seems to always trade not just higher, but a lot higher than Bitcoin in other places in the world. Now, $65,882 is what South Korea is getting for Bitcoin at this particular point. $65,882. We are, in fact, at fifty-six nine. So 65, you want to talk about an arbitrage opportunity. Holy shit, dude, there it is. But we don't have time for any more of it. We've got to run the numbers. All right, almost all the commodities are up, which probably means that bond price or bond yields got pushed down. We shall see. Oil is down a quarter of a point. $63 is going to buy you a barrel of West Texas Intermediate. Uh, Brent North Sea is also down a quarter. $66.61 gets you a barrel of that. Natural gas swinging for the fences up 1.79%. $2.72 gets you 1,000 cubic feet of that. All the shiny metal rocks are doing well. 
uh, to the tune of, ooh, good Lord, never mind. I thought it was an average, but it's not. Let's just pick them off one by one. 0.25 up to for gold. So $1,784.80 gets you an ounce of that. Silver is up a quarter. Platinum is up three quarters. Copper is up two and a half, dude. Two and a half percent. Palladium is up similarly at 2.3%. All the agricultural futures except for sugar are up. And I mean, corn's up like a buck, or not a buck. Corn is up 1.5. Let's see what cotton is up 1.3. Cocoa is up 1.1. Good God almighty. So let's see, what did we do? Oh, the indices, all the uh, indices futures are down. Dow futures is down a quarter. S&P is down a quarter. NASDAQ futures down a third. <clears throat> S&P mini is down almost a half, 0.45. And yes, indeed, interest rate futures on all the bonds have been pushed lower, but not honestly, not by a whole lot. Like the 30-year futures is down 0.04%. And the, the, the rest of them are like either unchanged or down by 0.01%. So there you go. Now, real money. Bitcoin is at $56,944.52. We only have had 211,000 transactions the last 24 hours. Bad. Dude, you would talk about getting punched in the gut, dude. That, like, okay, let's, let's, I, I, I forgot to talk about this a little bit. Have we ever heard of a safety inspection before in China that caused them to turn out, turn off the lights in huge swaths of, of provinces? Have you ever heard about this before? I mean, I get that 20, 22 miners were trapped in a, in a coal mine, but I'm like really unsure as to the logic behind saying, well, they're just doing safety inspections for power by shutting off all the power in the country. I don't know, man. I smell something rotten in Denmark. Anyway, that is only 8,700 transactions on average per hour. Guys, we should be at like 311,000 <clears throat> transactions per day and somewhere close to 12,000 transactions per hour. And we're nowhere close to that. So we got some, we, we got some bruises that we're going to have to heal up here. However, in those transactions, 750,000 BTC were indeed sent. That's 31,184 BTC being sent every hour on the hour with 3.55 BTC being the average transaction value and 0.02 BTC being the median transaction value, which is 1,115 bucks US. Block times, do you even wanna know? <laughs> 15 minutes and 19 seconds, bro. Oh my God. 1.81 BTC is being taken in fees on a per block basis, while 168 BTC have been taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. And like I mentioned, we are at 130.69 exahashes per second, and that is with a 10 or actually an 11% increase in hash rate over the last 24 hours. Your shitcoin indicator is Dogecoin sitting at 0.39, sorry, not 0.39, at 39.5 pennies. That's 39.5 pennies. Dogecoin. That's right. Dude, Litecoin is at 270. Uh, Ethereum Classic is at almost 40 bucks, guys. Jesus, it's ridiculous. There are 105,000 transactions 
waiting to onboard 66 blocks for the mempool to clear and it's not going to clear but that's okay we are still above a trillion dollars in market cap it's 1.06 trillion and that represents a 9.11 percent capture of gold's total market cap you will only get 31.6 ounces of shiny metal rocks for one bitcoin of which there are 18 million six hundred and eighty six thousand and forty two point two one in circulation at a price of 56,930 according to wherever Clark Moody is getting his information from. There are, let's see, 1,206.5 BTC locked up in the Lightning Network and that is a capacity value of $68.7 million US with 10,634 nodes with uh, rather holding 42,364 channels. Percentage of Tor capacity remains stable <coughs> stable at 57.7%. That is 696.35 BTC in the, light, in the Tor side of the Lightning Network. And that's being run over 4,837 nodes that we know about. That's going to do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the morning roundup. Let's get into this Coinbase sell-off uh, stuff from Brian Armstrong and, and the other insiders. In case you hadn't heard, uh, the insiders, that the C-suite executives over at Coinbase on the day of their listing basically pulled the trigger on several thousand, hundreds of thousands of shares of stock that they owned. And at first, I was caught flat-footed by not understanding the, the ramifications of that. So we're going to get into it. But let's start here. I, I think I'm incorrect in, when I said the following. Brian sold 71% of his own company yesterday, two, day, two days after going public. Conviction. And then I'm, I'm uh, retweeting Derek Coatney. Uh, who's got this uh, chart up. It's not a chart. It's basically a, a sort of like a database, of a listing of all the people that are insiders of Coinbase, either in their C-suite executive suite or people that have done venture capital in, investing into Coinbase. So it looks like this. Like on the, These are all executed on the 16th, according to the, t the date stamp. Uh, Wilson Frederick R, or is it Frederick R. Wilson? Yes, yeah, it's Frederick R. Wilson. Uh, he's the director, and he sold. Let yeah, he sold uh, fifty-two or forty-eight uh, percent of his stock. Union Square got rid of a hundred percent of theirs. Brian Armstrong got rid of seventy-one percent of his stock. Emil Chloe got rid of sixty-three percent, and then you go on down. Let's see. Uh, Let's see. Oh, the CFO uh, listed here sold 100% of her stock. Uh, I, you know, it's like, wow, that's a lot. Now, here's the deal. This is a direct listing and not an IPO. And as we all go through and learn about legacy financial shit together, an IPO, they were going to actually produce more shares and sell those and keep the stock that keep the stock that they had, but they basically would be diluting their own stock. This was a direct listing, so there was no creation of new shares. The only shares that would be able to be traded was going to be the shares held by all of the investors, all of the C-suite executives, and all that. And we get a better understanding of that from Kevin Reynolds writing for Coindesk, 
Coinbase CEO sold $291.8 million uh, in shares on opening day. <clears throat> the amount represents roughly 1.5% of his holdings. So it becomes confusing already because it looked like he got rid of 71% of it. So let's figure this shit out. Coinbase insiders and early investors sold about $5 billion in shares in total during the leading cryptocurrency exchange's first day of trading on the NASDAQ earlier this week, according to a series of filings made on Friday with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. CEO Brian Armstrong sold 750,000 shares in three batches at prices ranging from 381 to 410 per four total proceeds of 90 or I'm sorry, $291.8 million, according to one filing. While a Coinbase representative declined to comment due to the company being in a so-called quiet period based on filings made before the listing, it would indicate Armstrong sold about 1.5% of his stake. In another SEC filing, it was disclosed that Coinbase director and venture capitalist Fred Wilson sold 4.7 million shares for proceeds of $1.8 billion. While it's not clear how much of Coinbase Wilson still holds, he's listed on the filing as a holder of at least 10% of the shares of Coinbase, which has a market cap of $63.6 billion. Union Square Ventures, the VC firm led by Wilson, sold 4.7 million shares or 7 4.7 million dollars worth of shares from its 2012 fund for proceeds of 1.8 billion according to another filing. The fund is also listed as a 10% uh, owner of Coinbase shares. Together the sales by Wilson and his firm's fund accounted for more than two-thirds of the 5 billion dollars worth of shares sold. Software engineer and venture capitalist Mark Andreessen, <coughs> who is a Coinbase director, as well as a holder of more than 10% of the exchange's shares, together with his firm Andreessen Horowitz and two associated entities, sold a total of 1.18 million shares for $449 million. An important thing to keep in mind is that selling by insiders was sort of the whole point of Coinbase's direct listing. It's where the shares were supposed to come from. The only thing new here is exactly who sold what and for how much. For, unlike an initial public offering in which new shares are issued by the company with the proceeds going to its treasury, in a direct listing, the public is only offered existing shares that are held by the insiders. Even though a company gains no proceeds from a direct listing, it does benefit in other ways. In addition to allowing insiders to profit, a direct listing is a tremendous PR event and more tangibly vastly broadens the pool of hodlers while enabling the company to more easily raise capital in the future. As Noel Arkson, Coindesk's director of research, put it so well, quote, a direct listing is a liquidity event. An IPO is a capital raising event, end quote. So I hope that kind of clears it up for you. I think I was flat wrong. Uh, so you, there, like, I just didn't realize. And it's just one of those things where you got to eat crow. You know, you know you're ignorant. You just don't know it until you say it. Hey, I'm going to eat the crow. It's not, it, I'll, I'll be fine. Now, ASIC calls for closer engagement, but crypto industry says rules are unclear. Okay, ASIC. Australia's securities regulator, that they're named ASIC, which I find rather humorous. Martin Young tells us about it from Cointelegraph. 
The Australia Securities and Investment Commission, or ASIC, is urging local blockchain and crypto firms to engage with regulators to help them foster innovation in the region. Speaking at the Australia Blockchain Conference on Monday, April the 19th, Senior Advisor of Strategic Intelligence at ASIC, Jonathan Hatch, emphasized the regulator is trying to build trust and collaborate with the crypto economy. Panelist Kevin Saunders, the CIO of Monochrome Asset management stated that while the blockchain sector could do more to understand the ASIC regulatory framework, the commission needs to provide greater clarity as to the industry's compliance obligations. Saunders took aim at the opacity of existing regulations characterizing the industry's oversight as too ephemeral for large institutions to engage with it. Commenting on the challenges in the sector, National Blockchain Roadmap lead Chloe White agreed that it is a challenging industry or challenging for industry stakeholders to keep up with the current regulatory environment. CEO of digital financial agreement firm Ligon 1B, Justice Amos, added that regulators need to collaborate to support new technologies rather than seek to stifle emerging industries with heavy-handed regulation. The Australian government has already been supportive of blockchain projects, having made two grants of up to $3 million available to blockchain teams targeting minerals certification, that's bananas on the blockchain, guys, and excise taxation solutions in late March. In November of 2020, the Reserve Bank of Australia announced partnerships with the Commonwealth Bank, National Australia Bank, financial services company Perpetual, and God, Ethereum firm uh, consensus to explore the potential use of a wholesale central bank digital currency. In January of 2021, Cointelegraph predicted that Australia would be one of the first five nations to launch a CBDC due to its favorable blockchain environment. Yeah, so Australia, as draconian as they are, kind of making Canada look... Uh, It'll look better, but not by the financial terms because Canada obviously has a shit ton of ETFs. And yes, they're going to list three Ethereum futures or, or Ethereum ETFs uh, soon, probably this week. If not, then next. But there, I saw a report today that Canadians are standing at the Canadian-U.S. border at night flashing flashlights in Morse code signaling SOS. Because I don't know if you heard about what's going on in Canada over the last few weeks, but it's getting bad. It's actually, it's not just bad. This is downright frightening. So as far as, for as much bullshit as Australia has performed on their citizenry, dude, Canada at this point is going to take the cake. It is going to make, I mean, of and of all people, dude, I love Canadians. They're really polite. They're nice. I'm just like, I've never met a Canadian that I didn't like. Good people. How the hell they got bamboozled into these elected officials is beyond my comprehension, but they are going to pay the price for that stupid shit. So now um, let's get into this. Well, let's just do this one first. Let, okay, Doge, let's do it. Let's figure this one out because a lot of people, they, they really don't know what's going on underneath the hood of Dogecoin or its history and they're aping into it like the primates that they are. And eventually, they're going to get wrecked. So here's why. As Dogecoin gains top 9,392% 
Coindesk's Adam B. Levine finds some surprising parallels between the top meme, meme token and Bitcoin. I would take that statement with a grain of salt. Okay, this is more about what's going on with, with Dogecoin than a comparison with Bitcoin, although he does make them, but let's do it. To those of us who have been in the industry for a long time, Dogecoin has always been an oddity, a project that has exceptional approachability and appeal to new users while lacking most of the characteristics that make cryptocurrencies useful or even valuable. Created in 2013 by Jackson Palmer and Billy Marcus, the project was abandoned years ago by its founders and developers, if not its fans. Until recently, it was in such a weak state that it couldn't even power its own blockchain infrastructure and in 2014 hitched its proverbial wagon to another earlier cryptocurrency called Litecoin. At the time, that seemed like a necessary move. There were questions about whether Doge could survive at all. Then yesterday, the top meme, to meme token eclipsed its patron chain. For the moment at least, Dogecoin is more than double the size of Litecoin and 330-year-old Barclays Bank as well when measured by market capitalization. So what on earth is happening? A couple of years ago, I did a series of interviews with people in Iran, India, Singapore, Honduras, Nigeria, and a couple of other places I went in assuming that Bitcoin would not be the token of choice because the transaction fees are, in many cases, higher than a day's wage and just generally are out of whack with the value scales locally. I learned that although that was true, people still saw Bitcoin as their best option, which created a self-reinforcing cycle, the implications of which we're still watching play out today. Those decisions are driven by a simple question. Of all the currencies to which I have access, which one is most likely to be useful to me? For Bitcoin, that utility comes in two flavors. One is predictability. People turn their local currencies into Bitcoin because they are looking for a way to store value that's disconnected from local political and economic realities. Everyone knows about Bitcoin's fixed supply token or fixed token supply, as well as its largely unchangeable monetary policy, making it out of reach for governments broadly. The other reason, which may be even more important, is liquidity. <clears throat> People want to be sure that when they decide to sell, there will always be somebody on the other end of that trade. So even though in local terms, Bitcoin can be viewed as quite expensive, it is the consensus option. People can, can and do choose to buy other tokens, but this long tail of crypto investing is incredibly and increasingly diverse as the number of tokens to pick from expands. They're more speculative because there's little to, or no consensus. That could change, but the so-called first mover advantage in the network effect that Bitcoin carries with it has been an incredibly powerful machine. To put it simply, Bitcoin is so useful because it's what everybody uses. For most of the year, I've increasingly come to believe that Dogecoin is acting like that now, just as Bitcoin is the consensus pick for people looking for predictable moneyness in their currency, Dogecoin is looking like the consumer pick for people who want meme wackiness in their currency. Yeah, that's idiotic. That certainly seems to be the case among the Elon Musks, Slim Jims, and Mark Cubans of the world, not to mention a growing share of meme culture broadly. This was highlighted on ConAgra's brand or ConAgra brand's corporate earnings call this week. ConAgra is not a hip company. It owns a formidable basket of old world brands, including Slim Jim, Marie Callender's, and Hunt's Tomatoes, along with more than a dozen others. But 
When it came time to talk about recent wins, ConAgra CEO highlighted his team's Dogecoin engagement strategy as key. This is sickening. Dogecoin has helped double Slim Jim's Twitter followers, boosting engagement by more than 500%. Sean Connolly, the CEO, credited the Dogecoin community with playing a large part in delivering Slim Jim, the ultimate win in Adweek's March Madness-themed brand face-off earlier this month. Doge has become the joke currency to beat. Everybody wants to be in on the joke, which pushes up the price, which makes the joke even bigger. It's a self-reinforcing cycle. Sort of like Bitcoin, but for the lulls. Now, this could all end very badly. Yeah, it will. Lots of people buying Doge at these prices don't know the true story. As they say, easy come, easy go. But at least for now, it sure looks like Dogecoin is the gold standard of joke currencies. And maybe that's enough. Yeah. You know, what you, what you didn't mention here, buddy, is that Doge prints 14 million new Dogecoin every single day. In a year, they have added, you know, 5 billion Dogecoin to it. And now it's chilling out at at damn near 40 cents. Do the math. This is one of the, this is like from an inflationary standpoint, this is horrible. (laughs) Hey, Dogecoin is, Dogecoin is not, is not the coins you're looking for. Okay. Like, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for, dude. It's not. It's cute. But cute will get you killed. It really will. And believe me, I know. I, I hold a bag of Doge and I got killed on the opportunity cost of not using that $100 for Bitcoin when it was $250. Think about that. I could sell my entire fucking stack right now and, and not even come close. Well, I guess that depends on your, your, you know, your point of view. But in my point of view, I don't, I don't even come close to the amount of money I lost with that $100 of Doge back in 2015. I mean, and I was just having fun. It was a hundred bucks, okay? It was a hundred bucks. I can't even, like the opportunity cost of, of getting into any of the shit coinery that I was into in 2015. And it took me, it was, I think it was that summer. Uh, see that, like, yeah, it took me a full, like, cause I first got in in September of 2015. And that next summer I got rid of Ethereum and just bought uh, bought uh, Bitcoin with it, and I got rid of like some of the forks and bought Bitcoin with it. So I increased my my Bitcoin stash, but I should have just I should have never bought them in the first place. If I'd been if I knew then what I know now, I would not have spent any money on those coins because they're all bullshit. Let that sink in, okay? Now, is there anything else here? Oh, Ray Dalio is talking about how China's CBDC could appeal to American investors. I'm not even going to get into that because it's just kind of ludicrous. And as far as the European Central Bank is concerned, half of Europeans think blockchain solves counterfeit digital euros. Is this going to be worth it? Oh, it's just, uh, fuck it, let's do it. The European Central Bank published this week the results of a public consultation on a digital euro. Half of the respondents, most of whom are German men, oh, the racism, said that blockchain would resolve counterfeiting and technical glitches, and most want a digital euro that respects their privacy. Yeah, you're not going to get it. The results aren't binding, but still provide invaluable input to the euro system's reflections on a digital euro. During the three-month consultation, which opened in October of 2020, 
8,000 respondents, 6% who are professionals, and the other 94% mere citizens, oh, mere citizens, weighed in on their preferences for the design of a digital euro. The digital euro would be a central bank digital currency, uh, a digital version of ECB's fiat currency. Governments are interested in CBDC because they make it easier to analyze financial transactions, bye-bye privacy, and cheaper to disperse money in times of crisis. CBDCs aren't necessarily based on blockchain, but they can be. Despite much hubbub, few central banks have launched CBDCs. Small economies like Cambodia and Bermuda have launched them. China, currently trialing its own digital yuan, leads the CBDC game among major economies, but such countries are way ahead of the pack. Most developed countries like Japan and the U.S. and many European countries are cautiously exploring the benefits of even testing it, hence why the ECB is still asking the public, or the public what kind of digital euro that they would like to use. Half of the citizens who responded want the digital euro to run on a blockchain, and half also demand a limited or no role for intermediaries. A fifth of the sample mentioned cryptography. Citizens want a CBDC that doesn't require constant connection to the internet and one that's focused on privacy, even that means even if that means sacrificing innovative features undefined in the consultation. Most said that modern technology is sufficient for a digital euro, but a digital euro would be very difficult in terms of stability of value, data protection, transaction cost, and public protection, the ECB said. Despite mustering 8,000 responses, the survey was far from representative of the European population, and that's because public consultations are open to anyone and, unlike surveys, make no attempts at diversity. 90% of the respondents were men and a third work in tech, and although the EU has 27 member countries, respondents from Germany contributed half of all responses to the public consultation those from Italy and France, followed by some distant 15 and 11 percent, respectively. So when can Europe expect a digital euro, if ever? In about five years, in which case they'll be too damn late, according to what Fabio Panetta, an ECB executive board member, told Wednesday uh, the members of the European Parliament. So there you go. That's going to do it for the news. And we're an hour in, and I'm not going to waste any more of your time. Do me a favor. Like, subscribe to the show, share it out with your friends, and leave me five-star reviews anywhere that you can leave any reviews whatsoever. And I suppose if you want to leave me a one-star review too, that's fair. I mean, if you just don't like the show, then I, I guess it's okay. It'd be better if you just didn't listen to it and, and not slam me because those five-star reviews really help, bro. <laughs> I'm just saying. Anyway, it's Monday. And we've got a long week ahead of us. Of put, I mean, if you think... Sunday was bad, okay? And I'm not talking about imminent price drops. I mean, while that shit could happen, um, I, I, I don't know if it is or not, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the influx of FUD. You're going to have every I told you so and people pointing fingers at you and Peter Schiff is going to be out there and Ray Dalio is going to be out there and all these other assholes are going to be out there like Peter Brandt. You know, and I'm getting to the point where I don't even, <clears throat> I don't even respond. It used to be fun to respond to Peter Schiff, and it's just not anymore. Plus, I'm starting to believe that people like Peter Brandt, Peter Schiff, are really cashing in on their engagement when they say bad shit about crypto because we accelerate, you know, their their tweet by retweeting it or responding to it. I'm I'm kind of done. I mean, unless it's just something, you know 
egregious that I haven't seen yet because I've seen all the egregiousness that I think I can see. I'm just not going to respond to it. So be careful this weekend and, and think definitively as to whether or not you're going to respond to any one of these people's tweets because all we're really doing is we're boosting their engagement numbers. And that means that they're using us and I don't like being used. Anyway, think about that and I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.